2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
3: Hi, this is Marion Bartoli.
2: I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Sandra Winka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. This is Yannick Noah and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. <laughs>
4: Hello, folks, and welcome to Middle Sunday of Wimbledon, or what would have been Middle Sunday of Wimbledon, possibly one that they would have been playing on, given that the weather in London this week has been utterly ropey. Um, But as it is, it's Middle Sunday of Wimbledon Relived, courtesy of the Tennis Podcast and the uh, insatiable desire for podcasting of David Law. How are you doing, David?
5: Yeah, I'm all right. Some would say that it still should be Middle Sunday. Um, Alas. here we are. Uh, and, uh, and I'm delighted about that, actually. Um, partly because we've just been getting to watch another player that we love to watch, um, who is going to be the feature of this one, but also quite like talking to you two, really.
4: <laughs> Can't get enough of it, literally. How are you doing, Matt? Sleep deprived?
6: I'm not allowed to be sort of snooty about doing it now after David's lovely words. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, you are. Yes, you are, Matt. No, seriously, it's great. (laughs) And I'm well, thank you.
4: Convincing, Matt. Convincing. Um, We are in the territory now where you were alive. He's alive, everyone. It's 1997. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Do you remember what you were doing in 1997? Learning to walk, first words, any of that?
6: I took ages to learn to walk. I developed a very good shuffle technique, which wore through all my shorts and trousers, apparently, and didn't learn to walk until I was about two, I
4: think. I think that's called crawling,
6: Matt. No, no, I was I was on my bum. <laughs> <laughs>
4: <Right>. <laughs> As opposed to my knees. Um, what was your first word? Don't know. Well, this has been a good segment, David. <laughs> David, what were you up to in 1997?
5: I developed quite a good shuffling technique.
4: Um, no, tra- no, we're tra- was- trying to move on for the bomb shuffling technique, David. Help me out here.
5: I, I was shuffling from pub to pub um, <laughs> at that particular time. I'd got curtains hairstyle. Uh, I was still hanging on to the Hugh Grant years at this point. So I'd been going for a good three and a half years, and uh, yeah, it was it was when I finished university three years at Loughborough University having had the time of my life and suddenly realised realising oh it ends <laughs> now what do I do um and uh, yeah so I was I was kind of between positions let's just say that is
4: this about the time that you moved to the Devon countryside uh, did a journalism course and lived with a man that had a sword collection <laughs>
5: A, well, it's Cornwall, but uh, but yes, basically yes. I lived with a I lived on a farm, and one of my housemates had a samurai sword collection <laughs> in his room. Which, when he brought it in, I I was it made me a little bit jumpy, to be quite <laughs> honest. Um, but but I, I do remember I, I I watched um I watched the Pat Rafter Greg Rozetsky U.S. Open singles final. Uh, in a pub and I managed to get them to convince them to stay open to let me watch it
4: he's hosting lock-ins folks 1997 a rock and roll year for David Law as you've as you've given the game away there it was uh it was the year of Greg's um highest high reaching the US Open final in uh, in early September of that year, losing out to Pat Rafter. Of course, it was just days after Princess Diana died in a car crash, just days after Mother Teresa died. That was uh, both those events, hugely memorable in September um, or August, September of, of 1997. It was also the year that the NASA Pathfinder landed on Mars. Hong Kong was returned to Chinese rule. The Kyoto Protocol Um, was agreed by 150 countries Um, The Lion King debuted on Broadway Uh, that's got billing on my list ahead of Tony Blair becoming British Prime Minister (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Dolly the Sheep was successfully cloned uh, in the UK that was a big one Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone was published Alexander Zverev and Naomi Osaka were born. The biggest selling single of the year was Candle in the Wind, the Diana version, obviously. And Titanic, the film, was released, which I saw three times at the cinema.
5: Oh, see, I was expecting some very sarcastic remark about the Titanic, particularly when I was going to say how much I enjoyed it.
4: Three times at the cinema and then I pre-ordered the video and, and, and collected, it at, collected it at midnight on the day of its this release.
5: A very, very big surprise to me. Um, yeah, but I, I was like 11,
4: you know, so it was okay. I, I'd like to think I wouldn't do that now. but <laughs> You wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, let's just say I enjoyed it very much. I skated to the music. I had a dress made which had the, um, you know, the necklace, the Heart of the Ocean necklace encrusted onto the neckline of the dress. Mm, it was a really cool time in the life of Catherine Whitaker. Um, it was a cool time, non-ironically, in the life of Martina Hingis. She was only a few years older than me, ridiculously, but she was having one of the all-time great tennis seasons and that really isn't an overstatement, I don't think. I mean, it's a hugely underrated, untalked-about tennis season, one of one of the very, very best.
5: Yeah. When you just look at the fact that she didn't lose a tennis match until the French Open final, and, I mean, that, that's absurd, isn't it, really? I mean, that that's something Novak Djokovic almost did in 2011. And remember how much we talked about that run of 40-plus wins in a row and he lost in the semifinals? She, she beat everybody, and she was in a really, really strong era. OK, some of the players like Venus and Serena Williams, were still to come into their own. Serena hadn't started yet, but Venus was was just coming along. But she, you're talking about the tail end of Monica Seles, of Steffi Graf. They were still, still significant figures. Lindsay Davenport was around. There were so many good players in that era, and she was utterly dominant for the first six months of it.
6: Yeah, I mean, just to... Put a bit more meat on the bones. She won her first 38 (laughs) matches of the season, her first six tournaments. um, And in that time, she actually fell off a horse twice. She fell off a (laughs) horse during the Australian Open, a horse named Magic Girl, and still won the tournament without dropping a set.
4: I love that on her off days, she's just, um, you know, riding a horse on a ranch somewhere during a grand slam (laughs) and
6: then was doing it again in april when she actually suffered a slight tear of her posterior cruciate ligament in her left knee which meant that she had to withdraw from a load of um events building up to the french open and that you know she was undercooked in that french open and that was perhaps one of the reasons why she didn't win the final against um eva maioli and that french open final loss was the only grand slam match she would lose that season and in fact it was the only grand slam match she would lose until the following years french open because she defended her australian open title at the start of 1998 just just incredible dominance in the biggest events
4: and ps she was 16 16 and it, and it wasn't even particularly out of the blue you know it it had been coming for a couple of years before she was, all, she had been setting sort of youngest ever records for for several years. I think she was the youngest ever junior Grand Slam champion at twelve years old, not even a teenager.
6: Twelve. I mean, <laughs> I fell off my chair when I read that yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, and then she became the youngest Grand Slam champion ever in any discipline uh, at Wimbledon in 1996 when she won the doubles with Helena Sukova, aged 15 years and 282 days.
4: Do you remember this year, David? I mean, obviously you remember 1997, that goes without saying. But do you remember this year for for Martina Hingis and the achievements and and how the tennis world reacted to her at the time?
5: Vividly. Uh, I think partly because I was just such a huge fan of her, of watching her play tennis. I thought she was just a joy to to watch. If I I could go back and watch any player watching past matches, just, just for the sake of watching the tennis, she would be... Probably in the top five uh, of of all players, but just because she just gives you or at least me as a as a viewer joy to watch somebody go about it in the way she did uh, using this clever game making making tennis look absurdly easy and just diffusing powerful players' games and and but as it was going along. The, the, the it was just assumed she would win it was it was martina navratilova like or chris Evert like it was it was those sort of winning streaks that she was putting together she made the game look absurdly easy and i thought she would dominate for many many years to come uh, it was it's a big shock that she didn't
4: it was assumed that she would win by no one more so than herself <laughs>
5: <laughs> That's correct. Because I mean, so.
4: Martina Hingis quotes circa 1997 are the gift that keeps on giving. They are, I mean, just relentlessly brilliant. Come on, Matt, hit us with some Martina Hingis quotes. <laughs> well, she took
6: in March. She defeated Monica Seles six two six one in Miami to become the youngest ever world number one. And uh, she said, "Why should I be worried about the future?" Right now, almost everything is perfect. Asked if she felt unbeatable, Hingis said, well, I am. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and there's also the famous one where around that time she was having this so-called rivalry with uh, Anna Kornikova. And it's the one, you know, what do you think of your rivalry with her? And she said, what rivalry? I win all the matches. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, I mean, none uh, of
4: none of these statements are factually inaccurate, exactly. are they? It's is this a Swiss thing to do? You know, because because Roger Federer does this and has always done this, doesn't he? And, he? and he he gets away with it more than more. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Martina Hingis did get away with it at the time, but she earned herself a re- reputation as being, you know, an arrogant brat, didn't she? But maybe maybe this is what they're teaching the kids in Switzerland.
5: <laughs> it's just magnificent lack of any sort of modesty uh, of false modesty it's just this is just how i see it uh, i mean my, my personal favorite i think is the fact that uh, this this was all taking place when tiger woods was was breaking through and winning his first masters and and she was having a similar kind of season and she was getting i guess she was getting compared to him and she said, it's all the time, Tiger Woods, Tiger Woods. I'm better than he is. I've been on top longer and I am younger.
4: <laughs> I mean, again, at the time, though, those statements are not factually inaccurate. right? Well, they, they have not <laughs> aged well, but she, she is indeed younger than Tiger Woods. What, what, I mean, did, seriously, what did Tiger Woods done one, she, in 97? She
5: was one match win away from the Grand Slam.
4: Let's not yeah,
6: forget. No, that. I know. I mean, Tiger Woods won the Masters by twelve strokes, and <laughs> you know, got forty-four million people watching golf, and there was the symbolic black man winning at the Masters, this kind of elitist place in golf.
4: Yeah, but he, but he, he was older, Matt. All, all of that is insignificant compared to the fact that he was older. <laughs> yeah. Than
6: what Hingis. else did he win? <laughs> well, I mean, in nineteen ninety-seven maybe Hingis did win more but um yeah I mean Tiger Woods was revolutionizing the sport and Hingis was Hingis also said I'm just better (laughs) than Tiger Woods (laughs) was the end of her quote
4: which is less possible to objectively fact check (laughs) that one but I mean Tiger Woods obviously went on to have the sustained success and the consistency and Martina Hingis didn't and I wonder if if I'm not sure how golf literate you were at the time, David, but if you'd been, you know, if you'd been asked at the time, who's going to have the more sustained career out of the two, what you might have thought, what answer you might have given?
5: Yeah, it's difficult to say because I do, I remember watching that Masters that Woods won and it was people don't win major championships by 12 shots certainly not <laughs> when they're just starting out it just doesn't happen uh, and he would he was leaving fields behind for years although that particular year I seem to remember he went to the open and didn't didn't fare very well that particular year um but anyway what would I have thought like I say I thought Martina Hingis would dominate the sport for years to come. There was, She was so young, to be 16, 17, already playing at that level and just, frankly, taking the mick out of opponents. She was making opponents look silly. She was that good. Uh, the, the idea that she wouldn't win Wimbledon again after 97 would have seemed absolutely ridiculous,
6: to me at, at least. And that's why I never really know how to talk about Martina Hingis in a way. It's why I think she's an interesting case. She's kind of a little bit of an island because you wouldn't call her probably a cautionary tale because she didn't sort of go off the rails or have the struggles that other young talents had and yet she didn't have this sustained career either she sort of she sort of sits in her own little place you know and and she's also got these three very distinct phases of her her career when she had a couple of comebacks but i think when you go back to this era that we're talking about late 90s early noughties she was just this confluence of talent attitude and achievement and she stood out for all of those reasons.
4: And she was a a crazy crazy perfectionist wasn't she? I mean in in the final that we've just watched of that Wimbledon 1997 and in fact all of the the Martina Hingis matches that we've we've relived she she does a petulant racket bounce at you know what is essentially a forced error because she's annoyed that she didn't make it and produce a perfect winner from an impossible position. She is so good at tennis and so aware of how good she is at tennis, anything below perfection seems to disgust her, which is amazing.
5: Yeah, yeah she does give the most wonderful reactions that have us howling at time after time, even just raises of eyebrows and just sort of, oh, can we play another sport now? I'm bored of this one. <laughs> <laughs> I'm winning this one too easily. Um, but you're right. And, and actually, to me, watching it, it it didn't irritate me. I, I loved just loved watching her at the time. Her ability, particularly with the backhand, to just put it on any part of the court that she so chose. It was just she. It was easy for her. What 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 a skill! To I mean, I don't even. I never even thought that about Federer. That he kind that that I sort of thought. Oh, this sport's too easy for him. He had incredible skill set, but Hingis was the nonchalance with which she would do it. Or, or, and it wound people up. I mean, she was she was almost kind of mocking opponents with, with how easily she was beating them.
4: She was the top seed at Wimbledon uh, that year, as Matt said, having taken over the, the number one spot in March of 97. Monica Selish was the second seed. She had lost in the third round to Sandrine Testud, and Jana Novotna um, was the third seed. And of course, the final was between Hingis and Novotna. Can you remember, David, first and third seeds, but obviously Novotna having reached a Wimbledon final before with the far greater experience? I think she was 27 at that time. Who was the favourite going in? Who what, what odds would Bud Collins have told us that they each had?
5: Oh, I, I mean, Hingis would have been a comfortable favourite. Uh, she was the best player in the world by far, and she was just making mincemeat out of the draw, People hadn't forgotten Novotna's struggle. She was the sentimental favourite. I mean, people wanted Novotna to win, no question about it. And when she wins the first set 6-2, it really does look on because Hingis is a bit out of sorts in that first set. But she just controls things. If she's playing well, even though Novotna went up a break in the third set, it, it, I didn't see it coming, really. I, did, I remember watching the match and I expected... Hingis to just decode even the grass court problems that Novotna posed because Hingis had such poise, balance, time. She had time on every shot. It all seemed so straightforward to
6: Yeah, it's kind of composure when behind, to know that her game will eventually unlock what she needs to win the match. And then and then a kind of patience when she's ahead to not to not get ahead of herself, to not rush to the finish line just to play her game and trust her game. And she's, and she's grinning throughout the whole thing. Like even, as you said, even when she's making errors, she's kind of... Like, she, like she might petulantly bounce her racket a little bit, but she's also got this grin on her face. Like it's one big game to her, one, one it, big sort of, you know, ninety minutes of fun.
4: It's a face that says, "I know something you don't know." Mm. I'm, I'm playing a different sport <laughs> to the one that you're playing. Even at the, the, after the coin toss, the photo they have taken at the net. I mean, Jana Novotna is, is sort of got a, a shy smile on her face, which is nice to see after what happened in in '93. You know that she's you know looking relaxed enough to enjoy the moment but martina hingis looks like she's just accepted a marriage proposal or something she is you know it's a toothy ear to ear grin um and you know she's she should be she should be a bundle of nerves shouldn't she maybe maybe she was and she was just you know had a great poker face
5: but the thing is in her quotes that we read and there's so many of them the, the the feeling of of all of it around that time is what have I got to be nervous about? I'm winning all the time. It's you know, I'm winning easily. So, I mean, I'm I'm sixteen, seventeen. What what's the problem?
4: Well, there wasn't one because <laughs> despite losing that first set six two, as you say, she. She just took control of, of the match completely in that second set. What, what really struck me um, when watching the highlights we've just watched is how often Jana Novotna, who's this incredible athlete at, at getting to the net quickly and covering it quickly, um, how often Novotna was hitting a half volley when she would have far preferred to have been hitting a volley because Hingis was just dipping that return perfectly at her feet every single time and forcing Novotna to hit up, that her returns were just so pinpoint accurate, Hingis. It was something to behold, really.
6: Yeah, and I think, as we mentioned yesterday, it, it does sound like Novotna was carrying a little bit of an injury in that match and maybe maybe that was slightly preventing her from perhaps getting into the net as quickly as she would like. But what what struck me is how... How effortful Novotna's tennis was by the end, because she's struggling to keep up in a way with Hingis, who's just looking so relaxed, so calm down the other end of the court, and there's this there's just this such a big difference in demeanor. Novotna's sort of struggling to come through every service game, and Hingis is just just kind of cruising by the end.
4: Novotna does actually go a break up in the deciding. Set. She's she's too love up in that set, and and Hingis breaks immediately back. And I mean, she seemed to have incredible poise and self belief, no matter what position she was in scoreboard wise. But there was just absolutely no trace of panic whatsoever at every stage, even a breakdown in the deciding set. Martina Hingis is thinking, well, obviously I'm still going to win this. It, it yeah. and 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 you you believe her. I mean, obviously I believe her. You know, watching it, knowing knowing the result. But at the time, I can't imagine that I wouldn't have been swept up by that incredible self-assurance.
5: Mm, I, I would say it, it really divided people, though. I don't think she was that popular with the viewing public, really. It, it, was, it was a bit too self-assured for most people, I think, and a little bit too cocky who do you who do you think you are you know don't make fun of the game don't make fun of your opponents and i I don't think she was doing it purposefully to try to be disrespectful i think she just found the sport absurdly easy and (laughs) so she's just going to behave and she's so young you've got to remember how young she is oh my god she's 16 you are a brat at that age a lot of the time I think, and uh, everybody's got a bit of that in them. Um, and she was doing it out there in front of millions.
4: She earned the nickname the Swiss Miss, didn't she? Which I, I think I felt uncomfortable with at the time. I certainly feel uncomfortable with it, with it now. Um, but it was completely it it was completely normal to to refer to her that way, wasn't it? It was that was just. Yeah, I mean it's, what
5: it's, just, it's it. just it's just a like it's just a lazy rhyming reference point isn't it um and yeah I'm I'm quite sure I used it as well just because people did um but um yeah I mean I I look back on her her year now with with great kind of fondness because I really enjoyed it at the time and I lo- and I love watching the tennis I do feel that um <laughs> we overlook the fact that she was one match away from something that we would surely all remember differently now if she'd have won that match against Maoli. I mean, that doesn't necessarily mean she'd have gone on and won the other two because pressure may have told, etc. But, you know, there's only graph in the in the open area who's done it. If she'd have done it, surely that would may, have made a difference.
4: Uh, let's hear from Lindsay Davenport now, somebody that, ended up becoming a, a really great rival for Hingis for a few years there. And they had a lovely contrast to styles um, because Davenport had a really interesting perspective when I spoke to her um, a few weeks ago about Hingis's game and, and how underrated that season was in, in 1997.
0: The game was shifting and she was such a, so amazing to say like, nope, you could be bigger than me. You could be stronger than me. You could hit harder than me, but I've got this amazing feel. I have the ability to take balls wherever I want them in the court and put them wherever I want them. Um, her year in 97 is one of the all time greats and it would have gone, would have been an even greater year if she hadn't fallen off her horse and needed knee surgery before the French, I think she easily would have won that French open. Um, still got to the final Won the other three majors um, it's kind of one of the, the more underrated seasons, uh, in my opinion, on the WTA tour. She was so good. She was so young. At that time, she seemed to be handling everything pretty well, and her mom was was, was helping her out. I think Martina maybe got caught up a little bit in, in the attention when some of the other players started breaking through in the next couple of years of Kournikova and Williams and all of that of where do I fit in now. She definitely wanted to be Alpha, the top dog. And I think that was an adjustment for her when then Venus and Serena started kind of breaking through and then started really winning majors and kind of cementing their place at the top of women's tennis.
4: It blows my mind that she was doing something as high risk as horse riding. I know she absolutely loves horses and and equestrian. I, I know that, but... Tennis players don't do activities like that during their career because they can't. It invalidates their their insurance, doesn't it? I mean, they're such. um, It's it's grotesque to refer to them like this, but high value commodities. Tennis players they are insured against major um, career threatening injury, but it doesn't cover you for. I I believe it doesn't usually cover you for skiing. I remember when Tim Henman retired, and he was asked what he was most looking forward to about retirement. He says, I can ski now. I haven't been able to ski for the past 15 years. And Martina Hingis, the most, you know, one of the most high value um, commodities in the sport um, is just putting it all at risk um, to go Mm. horse riding. Well, I think it
5: tells you two things. One is that she, it's an indication of her age that she just, Was having to, faced with having to give things up that she felt she should be allowed to do as somebody, well, obviously very wealthy now, uh, all these options, and she's at an age where she wants to do this stuff. And, okay, I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, and I think that that's where the, okay, she didn't have the burnout and the and the, the real problems of a Capriati and players like that. But I think she was conflicted in as much as there's, there's so much to life. There's so much out there. There's so much I want to do. I'm just going to do it anyway. That was part of it. I think the other thing is she said in an interview I watched uh, this morning, I felt invincible. And I don't think she thought, she could come off the horse because probably thinks she's an absolutely world-class horse rider as well. Um And nothing's gone wrong so far. So why would she think it would go wrong now?
4: Well, it did happen twice in a year though. Yeah. It's one thing to yeah, think yeah. that the first time. <laughs> can you remember the, can you imagine the call going into her agent? I, I've, I've done it again.
6: <laughs> <laughs> this time it's bad.
4: <laughs> um. So yeah, I mean undeniably one of the all-time great seasons and and everybody's assuming given her age that that she will she will is it too much of an overstatement to say that she will dominate tennis for for many years to come. I mean at this point the Williams sisters are there. Aren't they? They're, certainly, Venus is 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 emerging. People are aware well, of them as a. She
5: play. She played Venus Williams in the U.S. Open final, and that was Venus's first ever U.S.
1: Open. It was a fairly one. To find out if it's right for you.
3: This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box, and if you break it down, it really comes out to two dollars a manicure, which Down.
4: this edition of the tennis podcast is sponsored by tennis channel and tennis channel plus is the place to watch the french open they've got every court live and you can watch on your phone or your smart tv both in hd matt this sounds like your kind of thing
6: yeah, there's nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere, dipping in to where there's the latest final set tiebreak or even the latest bit of aggro.
4: And David, don't worry, you can just watch your favourite court, Suzanne Lenglen, all day if you want. But whatever you choose, the French Open promises unforgettable moments and new chapters in tennis history.
5: Do you know, I think in a lot of ways, the French Open is now my favourite slam. It's the strategy of the clay court tennis, the way it challenges players, and particularly now with legends of the game up against a new generation of young players. I cannot wait.
4: Be there when it happens with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Subscribe to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription.
5: Sided match and uh i remember watching it uh there was a, an incredible amount of hype about venus but it was one of those where those that are following the circuit year round are just thinking well yeah but hingis is the best the better player certainly right now and i just did not expect the turnaround that that followed i mean she she remained a factor did uh, did hingis but I didn't expect her to lose her position of, of dominance the way she did. Yes, she won the Australian Open that followed as well. But I I really thought that that was going to go on for for many years. I mean, it's it's notable also that she was playing doubles and she, she won the calendar year slam in doubles in 98 as well. So, you know, maybe there was a kind of burnout.
6: It strikes me that it was a kind of combination of things, I think, One was, as Lindsay Davenport said there, players like the Williams sisters emerging and Davenport getting better and not not exactly the game overtaking her, but players slightly figuring her out, slightly realising how to harness what they had in their games to beat her. Also, I think the uh, French Open final that we covered in... Uh, Roland Garros relived against Steffi Graf is a is a really big turning point in Hingis's career where she after that she became far less secure in the big matches. She still reached a lot of Grand Slam finals after this 97 season but she lost most of them and I think that 99 French Open where she didn't convert her, her lead against Steffi Graf ended up having quite a big toll and people realised that there was a weakness there that they could chip away at and eventually injuries i mean she had all sorts of injuries on her ankles and i think her heels were badly inflamed i think that was the one that eventually took her out of the game in 2002 so there was a sort of numerous factors just converging and meaning that she gradually kind of fell away and never never became the fully dominant force that people thought she would
4: did she lack grit david it had all come so easily to her, it, it, it had seemed like she was playing tennis on a on a different plane to every everybody else. She she'd perhaps never had to to dig as deep as certain other players had to to achieve their success, and it's all going swimmingly. And then a real challenge comes along, not just in the form of the Williams sisters. There were there were others as well. I mean, Lindsay Davenport became a, a real real challenge to her and others but you know it it is most embodied by the Williams sisters that that shift and and that changing of the guard and she didn't adapt did she she didn't dig she didn't adapt she didn't change she she faded and I know that's Mm. a really harsh take on it all but you know when it got really when the going got really really tough she she faded
5: yeah i think she i do think she loved winning uh as you would expect, but I don't think she could really handle it when she wasn't winning that much and to go away and have to kind of reassess and regroup and come back and show that kind of resilience she did come back but yeah i, I think it it i don't think she was half the player when she was getting some losses because I think that that knocked herself perception um and and probably reduced how effective she was i think that can sound like a
6: harsh assessment but i do think it's exactly what happened i was reading some quotes from from her mother melanie molitor who said um she does only what she has to to get by she's not lazy but she only works as long as it's fun and it's not hurting and chris Evert talked about where's the need inside her to to sort of go back and prove that she's better than these players who are emerging um and obviously Chris Evert would would know all about that because she she did have that need inside her. she did reinvent her game to to sort of get the rivalry against Navratilova back on a back on level terms in the in the sort of latter half of that career so i think that's, that's exactly what happened i think she was bouncing from tournament to tournament when she was 16 17 not really thinking about it kind of kind of imagining that it might go on forever and then as soon as there was a little bit of a roadblock she maybe didn't quite have that determination that that was required
4: and she possibly underestimated the the Williams sisters when they were when they were first emerging onto the tour and and, and frankly some of the the comments she made about them are hugely uncomfortable aren't they i mean i i'd like to think that they were somewhat uncomfortable at the time and certainly you know as, as time has passed particularly now they feel incredibly uncomfortable and and I'd like to think that she would she would not stand by a lot of them but with the emergence of the Williams sisters came a, a an awkward confrontation I suppose between between Hingis and and them um I don't know how 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 did you perceive it at the time David how did you perceive her attitude towards the Williams sisters
5: I I found it uncomfortable at the time and I wasn't really that sure why I think now with the years that have passed uh, and understanding much more about unconscious racism um, and I I feel a lot more understanding of and it wasn't and I'm, I'm not pointing fingers at Martina hingis here I, I think that we were all or many of us were guilty of this um and of, of of kind of pitching these players against each other grouping uh venus and serena williams as the williams sisters the gate crashes the people who've come along from the outside uh, and i do feel really uncomfortable with that now um when I think of it in those terms, but that's kind of how it was built, um, and Hingis did nothing really to dissuade the story from being that. Um, but I, and I think generally she was just she was just pissed off that she wasn't the best in the world anymore, really, and that she wasn't just having her own way at every turn. Um, and yeah, I, I dare say she. Pr- she probably would feel a bit embarrassed. I hope she would feel uncomfortable with some of the things that she was quoted as saying when she was a, uh, still a young woman.
6: And I think her kind of desire to speak her mind cost her, when she was talking about other players as well, there's that rather ghastly quote that she gave about Mar- Emily Maresmo saying that she's half a man when she'd just come out of the closet, Emily Maresmo. And I think, um, I think they had a WTA mentor system and Chris Everett was Martina Hingis's mentor and apparently after that after that quote about about Maresmo um, Everett rang Hingis and said look you need to admit that you got that wrong and and Hingis said um, Hingis said no basically And, and and Everett said that Hingis got mad at her and blamed her of being diplomatic when all she wanted to do was kind of be honest and said what she felt um and i think publicly she she defended herself but i think as you said she was so young and we probably do have to take that into consideration when we do look back on these on these quotes and the context in which they were given i mean they seem they seem absolutely horrific now, and they and they really I think wouldn't stand up now, and they don't. And we can criticise them, but I also think at the time the context is is important to note.
4: She, the only person she <laughs> she seemed to have sort of uh, uh, generous things to say about the only fe- fellow players she seemed to have generous things to say about at the time was Jana Novotna. She she said some really nice stuff about Novotna after that ninety seven final, didn't she? She said you you deserve to win this title, and I don't know whether she meant today <laughs> or or, <laughs> or sort of generally. You, you, you can you can have another one another time when I'm when I'm over it, and not it, this one.
6: And it was Novotna with whom she won three of the four doubles grand slams that David mentioned in ninety eight. Um, I think they actually ended up having a falling out a year later when hingis dropped her as a (laughs) as a doubles partner because i think she said something like novotna's old and slow and novotna fired back saying she's young and stupid um so
3: so,
6: so, so it sort of descended but yeah for a while novotna and her were definitely close and successful together
4: she won. She won uh, several double slams with Anna Kornikova as well, didn't she? So their relationship obviously recovered from the what rivalry I win all the matches <laughs>
5: comment. I, I, I my sense a little bit was that Hingis saw all the attention that Kournikova got, um, and A didn't like it, and B kind of wanted to have her share and probably liked hanging out with Kournikova for for some of the attention. Um, That's how it came across uh, at the time. And I think that that also was probably a distraction. um, from. I think she enjoyed the life. I think she enjoyed the sort of the razzmatazz that went around it all. Um, And I'm not sure that helped her achieve as much as she could have done.
4: David, you interviewed um, Martina Hingis back in January of 2014 when she was in between what what we're calling phases two and three of her career. She'd she'd had her singles comeback, um, and we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, but she was, it was before she made her return to to the doubles court on which she had great great success, most notably with Sania Mirza. Um, and you covered a number of topics. You started off by asking her about the success she had at such a young age and and um, asking her why why that was so special why other people aren't aren't doing what she was doing at 15 or 16 well, i think mainly part of it
3: is is also okay the game has gotten more physical it's um, the technology is different the, um but also because the girls, they're not allowed to play as many tournaments, uh, which I totally disagree with this age eligibility rule, because I think the girls should be open uh, and free with at the age of 16. I mean, I was already two years on the tour. I mean, I had some rules as well, but not as strict as they are these days, that the girls are only free to play um, the full schedule from 18. So I think, you know, they lose in a way two years of time and... Um, yeah it's uh, hard to to pick it up um uh, when you're 18 or 20 uh, when you need that experience and um so that's why we see champions who are older these days. Yeah, yeah and of
5: course I, mean, I was looking at that, that you retired for the first time at, at just 22. I mean it it seems extraordinary when a lot of players are starting to to make their name at that sort of age. Did did you feel that you missed out at all by playing as young as as young as you did?
3: No not at all actually because I felt like yeah I had uh looked after myself already uh, at 22 and I had still you know a great future a bright future ahead of me and I mean still of course there's uh, great years of tennis and I mean I had a little comeback and um, which I'm still very proud of and um, I don't know it's uh, I think sometimes also the priorities change and It's just, um, I played juniors already uh, when I was like, yeah, 12 and 13. So I had that experience and um, it it was just a different time, I believe, as well. Because, you know, playing uh, against Steffi Graf, Arantxa Sanchez at that time, who were like 10 years older than me, they all started young as well. So I wasn't the only one at that time. But, um, yeah, they had long careers. I had a shorter one, but still, you know, it's a 10-year career. It's not like... Um, only one one hit wonder
5: (laughs) you won your first title here 15 years ago i mean not not long after that you were playing against serena williams who is still dominating the tennis circuit today that that is extraordinary isn't it
3: yeah it is definitely but um it also tells you know how uh, great the sisters were when when they played you know like in 2001 and 2 when they were uh, at their best, so um, and now still, it's amazing. But she's always been very smart about her schedule. She never played as many tournaments. I mean, they had a lot of breaks and, um, I mean, an injury here and there. But they were very smart about it, and I think that's why, you know, she's played like half of the matches at that time that I played uh, with the doubles and everything, played mixed doubles. So uh, maybe the age of 25 when I had my comeback, she only played like half of the the matches or the tournaments that i did so she still had like the five
4: years ahead of me (laughs) so that's really interesting her implication there is that she she possibly suffered from from overplaying and yet she is adamantly opposed to the age eligibility rule which is in place to to prevent burnout of young players so Mm. it's not necessarily a coherent view but it is it is an interesting one
5: I also think it's a bit of an excuse that she's giving herself and probably a bit of a diss of Venus and Serena it, by comparison, as if she's saying, well, if I had only played the amount of matches they'd played, I'd have still been going today. Um, but look, she decided her own schedule with her, okay, with her management company, with her mother, and As we say, she won the calendar year slam in doubles in 98. She was playing singles and doubles all the time. She played over 90 matches in 1997 and won, I think she only lost about six or eight matches in the whole year. Um, And her success was just crystallized into this very short period of time. And I've often thought with other prodigies I was thinking about Wayne Rooney's career that he was never more the 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 English footballer that he was never more devastating than when he was 17 years of age same with Michael Owen and I'm not sure necessarily certain players have longevity in them I, I don't know whether Hingis had that in her mentally you talked about whether she whether it was grit and now she made comebacks but I just find it quite interesting that it's almost like she she turned her life upside down to what most people have. Most people have childhood, fun and games, and then get serious and become something. She was something immediately and then started to wish she could ride horses and do fun things. And she went and did them at the age of 22 and then got bored, quite honestly, I think. And, and that's when her comeback started two in 2006 and i covered that and for the first month or so it was joyous i remember her her you her australian open comeback she beat vena zvoreva uh in in the first round who was seeded and absolutely took her apart and it was just rolling back the years this glorious tennis but she was never as good as she was before um yeah she found it difficult I think to leave the sport um and yet she also couldn't hack it anymore
4: Well she ended up leaving the sport 3 times <laughs> Because uh, yeah, she had three three separate retirements. We'll um, we'll talk about each of those just in a minute. But let's first hear from Mary Carillo reflecting on well Martina Hingis's career generally, but first of all on that Wimbledon triumph in 1997. It's funny, uh, Matt dug up a, a quote in his research from Hingis saying she hated grass. Um, that obviously coming before she ended up winning the title but here's Mary reflecting on why Hingis's game worked on the grass
7: people think that you've got to be overpowering to win it at Wimbledon but you don't you just have to know how to use that surface to your to your benefit and Hingis was an absolute master in singles
4: and dubs on the grass I mean, at that moment in '97, as a, a 16-year-old looking looking like she was playing on a on a different plane to everybody else, if you'd told people then she, she's not going to win another one of these, it would have been scarcely right. scarcely believable. Yes, but
7: again, I think at a certain point, power—you know—the racket technology, string technology, all that stuff worked against her, and she had a hard time. You know, holding her serve after a while because people were just giving it the thump. And once, like, if you're once that once somebody knows how, what to do against you, even if you're great, once somebody has a game plan, <laughs> it's gonna kind of shake you. It's like with 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 Rafa and Roger. Roger knew that Rafa knew what to do.
4: He knew it. She's. I, I, I mean, I i obviously wasn't involved in tennis at the time i don't i don't know her she seems like somebody that that dealt with being a young champion maybe better than than some others better than better than maybe even is kind of normal because that's not a normal situation isn't it is it being a, a 16 year old major champion
7: she never seemed to be in over her head did she (laughs) <laughs> she never was wide-eyed and kind of wow. How did I get here? I think she fully expected to get there. <laughs> um, she was a very accomplished junior. Her mom was clearly a very fine coach and tactician. Um, no, she wasn't. She wasn't wide-eyed. She she pretty much knew how good she was and and uh, and how complete she was. And, and again, she had a terrific. She knew how to rub every one of her brain cells together in a match. She really did. Uh, again, at, at a certain point, you know, power overwhelmed her. But before that, boy, she was a pleasure to watch. She could figure out, she said, all right, maybe I can't win the point here, but three shots from now I see a winner. And it's in that back corner over there pulling her wide. Like you could just, it was fun watching her mind. work You can almost watch it. You know, mm. really taking the court, measuring the court, and then taking it bit by bit and forcing someone into a compromising position. I I truly enjoyed, I enjoyed Hingis' game. It was nice and tight and, again, great clarity.
4: So you- for Mary, the sort of a fading of of Martina Hingis as a, a major force in the game was was more about other people changing the game and 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 making it more physical and and power based. Um, and I'm sure the reality is that it's it's that along with a load of other factors, along with perhaps Martina Hingis not quite being mentally cut out for the the challenge of of other players, but. Yeah, she, she retired for the for the first time in two thousand and three, aged just twenty two. She was out of the game then for three years. She returned in two thousand and six. She did get back to the top ten. This is the comeback, David, that you were talking about, really, uh really relishing in. Um, and she played the WTA Finals that year, but her best result in a slam was was the quarterfinals. Um and then of course she ended up um, failing a, a drugs test, testing positive for cocaine and announcing her her second retirement in November 2007. And then it was a longer gap of six years before returning as, as a doubles player and having tremendous success in the doubles before um, retiring, I think, once and for all. <laughs> I mean, never <laughs> say never, but we, we think it's done and dusted um, a couple of years ago. I mean... It's quite a career, isn't it? Talk about highs and lows, um, yeah. And I, I haven't even mentioned her brief foray into Strictly Come Dancing. There. Speaking of and lows. I think,
5: <laughs> I, I think that that kind of even that fact sums up the the challenge she faced. And a lot of players who become massive stars and have all the success so young face. Well, what do I do next? And she she retired twice, did other things, inevitably found out she wasn't that good at a lot of them because, I mean, how can you be the best at everything? And I think that, that is probably, probably, probably quite a shock to the system for her to find out, oh, I'm not brilliant at this compared to everybody else. And... Then she just gets bored um and and then tennis comes back into the equation, and suddenly she's the best at that again, or she's one of the best and in doubles, it was I think it went well with her personality because I think she is a pretty gregarious character. she likes to have a chat and to to share it with somebody else. She was very successful in both doubles and mixed doubles um and yeah, she was the best at it i mean she, she's she's got to be one of the best doubles players we've ever seen, really, I would say um but the Strictly thing, um, she was terrible at. As you say, she went <laughs> out in the first round, and uh, and there were a number of reality shows she did where you could see her. Yeah, I mean, it's money, but she doesn't need the money. So what's she doing it for?
6: She was dealt a rough, rough hand getting the rumbo in. Uh,
4: well, as you say that, Matt. Dance. But it, so yeah, she was for, voted off for Strictly Come Dancing in the UK in two thousand and nine. And week one, she does a waltz, and it. It's possible. It's possible. And a waltz
6: is a gentle opener. Yes.
4: And then week two, she gets a rumba, which is very, very difficult. It's sort of just, I mean. It just looks like you're walking walking about, but with really swayy hips. Well, and it's all about chemistry, isn't it? And it is. You, can't, all, yeah. you haven't really got
6: that in week two with your partner. But,
4: but the best thing, I mean, bless him, Matthew Cutler, her partner, is doing his best to pretend. Though um, the best thing about it is she's got these these wooden hips, but she's got this look on her face that says, "Yeah, I'm good at this." <laughs> this is going really well. And then the the judges tell her otherwise and her face is like, Oh, (laughs) Mm. she really wasn't expecting it. Um, Matthew Cutler looks more like he potentially was expecting that feedback. (laughs) Um, And then she gets voted off, which I mean, I don't think she was um, voted off in week one bad. I feel like that's a tough hand, but um, she definitely wasn't very good at it. And she definitely didn't enjoy being not very good at it.
5: No. And I think that, <laughs> that sum, sums up the challenge, and I've seen it with a lot of other people. John Macchina always jokes that when I play music, live music on the guitar, it reminds me how good I was at tennis. Because, <laughs> you know, I, I in my mind, I'm great at this because that's what I want to be. I want to be great at everything that I do, just like I was at tennis. Well, he wasn't. He was rubbish. And his <laughs> wife used to say to him... <laughs> You know, just just leave the music to me, John. You know, I, I'm the I'm the rock singer.
4: He's got a set list of three songs, hasn't he?
6: One <laughs> of them's Glory
4: Days. It's Glory Days, it's Satisfaction, and it's Johnny Be Good.
5: <laughs>
4: yeah, yeah.
5: Uh, and the honky tonk. Oh, occasion- woman. <laughs> yeah.
4: Occasionally, honky tonk woman. Yeah. <laughs> if he's having a real like rolling stones fest um but anyway
5: somebody, somebody once said uh is john mackenor any good at music and uh, i he- heard i somebody say he's enthusiastic
4: <laughs> <laughs> he definitely is enthusiastic that's the yeah. sort of
6: comments they give on strictly come dancing to the really yeah. bad ones yeah <laughs>
4: um she's still the youngest ever open era wimbledon champion is that likely to remain we're talking about Martina Hingis now, not John McEnroe. Um, is that likely to remain the case for the foreseeable future?
5: Yes. Old Coco Golf. I mean, I think the, the, the truth is, if the if there wasn't a pandemic around, should, it's not impossible. She'd have had
4: to win it this year, Coco mm, Golf. To
5: I, I, th- I don't think that was impossible for Coco Golf to to win a Slam this year. Um, I I wouldn't have bet on it. But I don't think I think she was improving at such a rate at the end of last year. I think it's possible. Um Well, and,
6: and, and she lost to the eventual champion in Australia this year and pushed her to three sets. Um But no, I think all the trends are going away from youngest ever records being broken. All the ones that are being broken are oldest ever at the moment. I think there would have to be like we were talking about with Boris Becker, there's gonna have to be some Massive switch in in tennis for these youngest ever records to be broken. Yeah, Lottie Dodd is the only is the only younger Wimbledon champion,
4: but that was that was in the nineteenth uh, century. And if somebody younger than twelve wins a junior Grand Slam, then. I'm, I am w- want to be here to see it because that just that's ridiculous you've got to be a teenager at least making us all feel bad um, so that's Martina Hingis the youngest ever Wimbledon champion in the open era and and we think likely to to hold that record for for a long time to come it's um it's an unorthodox career she had and it's kind of difficult I was going to ask you to 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 sum up her legacy or to sum up how you both remember her. But I think that's potentially almost impossible because, as you say, Matt, she doesn't quite fit um, into a category. So so let's just remember her for her sass (laughs) and leave it at that. Um, Which leaves me only, other than um, saying hello to Gerald, our lovely, lovely uh, mascot cat, um, to ask you, Matt, where we're heading tomorrow.
6: We are going to... 2001 tomorrow, the first of two matches we're doing from 2001 over the next couple of shows. And we enter the fourth round of the men's tournament. Uh, Pete Sampras is the reigning champion, the four-time defending champion. And he plays Roger Federer in the fourth round. And that would be the only ever meeting between those two greats.
4: And it's not the 90s, but David still looks like he's about to explode with anticipation.
6: I am
5: so pumped. (laughs) I can't wait. Can we watch it now?
4: (laughs) You can. I'm going to go and have some lunch. Thanks for your company and for your chit chat. And uh, thank you for listening. And we'll see you tomorrow.